From Cider Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. Darts and Letters is a podcast about arts and letters, but for people who might hack a dart. We're a left-wing show about ideas, about academia, and sometimes about our tech bro philosophers. There is a new finance bro in town. These people that are just all blockchain. Now, aside from COVID-19, over the last year, I think these guys were the real story. The NFTs, the meme stocks, the crypto, it was everywhere. And here's what I think is interesting about them. Obviously, they've had a huge economic impact, but arguably, the cultural impact is even greater. Wall Street is back. Now, of course, it never really went anywhere, but culturally, the crypto bro has made trading cool. Think about that for a second. Even at the height of Reaganism, even when Gordon Gekko said greed is good, trading and Wall Street, that was always an establishment thing. It is now completely different. It is now transgressive. The crypto bros paint themselves as liberatory, as hip, and they are also very young. I'm looking at a piece now by Lucy Calloway in the Financial Times. She tells the story of one London high school. Today, like every morning so far this term, the sixth form girls sit around chatting in twos and threes, while most of the boys are in one large huddle. I'm up over 100 pounds in one day, bitches, a boy in the center crows. Others proclaim their gains in a conversation peppered with the words Shiba Inu, Dogecoin, and Elon Musk. Kellaway goes on to write, This boy has failed to show much interest in schoolwork over the years, but here he is, the Gordon Gecko of Form 13J. He spends all his time on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube, absorbing tips from dubious celebrities, which he then passes on to his disciples. Now, we are obviously not a podcast about financial literacy, but my God, I hope someone is making that podcast because these kids are going to get fleeced. What we are is a podcast about politics and ideas. And so the question I have for this Gordon Gecko of 13J is this. What kinds of ideas are you seeing there? Let's talk about his TikTok, because I happen to spend a lot of time on TikTok. And most of what you see is a kind of nihilism and hopelessness peppered with snide jokes. But I can assure you that Gordon Gecko of 13J has a very different TikTok. Gordon Gecko of 13J is definitely looking at tech bro wisdom and tech bro philosophy. When I was a kid, I had like this existential crisis and I was about 12 years old or something. And, mm-hmm. and, and then um, I, made, I made the mistake of reading Nietzsche and Schopenhauer. And, <laughs> you're listening to the wrong voices. You're looking at what's in front of you right now. If you think your life is shit, your life is shit. Put positivity in your ears. That negativity that you're hearing, you gotta get that the fuck out of your life. That's the game. Young person, you can choose a life of ease and comfort, or you can choose a life of service and adventure. Which one of those, when you're 90 years old, are you gonna be more proud of? A young person should find something. There are dozens of these accounts, probably hundreds, and they're very popular. All they do is clip these tech bro aphorisms. If you don't love your work, 
you're never going to be great at it. So now you might be asking yourself, why am I talking about this? Well, let me get to my depressing point. I think these tech bros are like our new intellectuals, our new thought leaders, at least for a certain class of young men. So who are they? Who are the tech intellectuals and what connects them? I think it's pretty simple, really. Banal optimism. They are essentially techno-utopians because they think that any problem, if you confront it head on and you really commit to it, you will find a solution. If it's your own life problems, well, stack the right skills, invest in the right NFTs, have the right mindset. And in our broader society, say we have some debilitating social problems. Well, technology will deliver us from them as long as we let the geniuses just do their thing. So today we are starting a new series of episodes on our tech thought leaders. Every once in a while, you're going to hear episodes about techno-utopian intellectuals and their imaginaries. We're going to look at the history of these ideas from the past all the way up to Elon Musk and the present. You'll hear about how techno-utopians cross the ideological spectrum, from the whole earth catalog style hippies turned techno-utopians to the socialist dreams of perfectly intelligent state planning, to the enlightened technocrats like Thorsten Veblen and Robert McNamara, who thought we could rationalize the US government. And today, of course, our anarcho-capitalists like Musk and Thiel. Their message is pretty simple. With the right technical innovations, we can engineer our way out of almost any problem. The natural first question is, do the techno-utopian innovations ever deliver? Probably sometimes they do, partly, but usually they don't. Like, do we really think that Elon Musk's Neuralink prediction is going to work out? This will take a while. <laughs> How many years before you don't have to talk? The, if, if the development continues to accelerate, then maybe like five years, five to ten years. That's quick. That's really quick. That's, that's not, the best case scenario. No talking anymore in five years. Best case scenario. I doubt it, but maybe that's not the point. Maybe these predictions don't really tell us much about the future. Maybe they tell us more about the present. Musk goes on and on with Rogan about how language is just inefficient. Computers are way better at transmitting data. Musk doesn't make any mention of the beauty of language, of creativity, of artistry, of idiosyncrasy, of joy, none of that. He thinks of language as instrumental tools for data transfer. And if the tool isn't as good as a computer, we've got to dump it. Now, this is just one example, like I said, but from it, I think you can see a lot. I think you can see how stilted his vision is of language and culture. I think you can see how he understands social problems as basically just narrow technical inefficiencies. I think you can see his hyper-efficient cult of optimization. You can definitely see his PR strategy. You can see what he thinks will impress us and impress Joe Rogan. And perhaps most of all, you can see how he sees himself. Grand disruptor, slayer of sacred cows. He'll even slay human language. This is what looking at techno-utopian projections let us do. They don't really tell us much about the future, but they tell us a lot about the present. Now, in developing this episode, it posed a big problem. It's really hard to pick one utopia. There are so many others. But I guess... If you had to pick one, the best kind of utopia, it would be one that's so super concentrated 
Like, imagine that you could find a place where it was just all techno-utopia all the time. Imagine there's a place where you could just basically mainline a lifetime of this techno-optimism straight into your veins and just overdose on optimism. There is such a place. It is called a World's Fair. to the $155 million wonderland. From far and near come countless visitors. By every mode of travel, every means of transportation, they arrive to view the marvels of the greatest exposition in history. You're hearing audio from the 1939 World's Fair in New York City. About 200,000 people attended on its opening day, and by the end of it, about 45 million people did. And those people saw electric sidewalks, seven-foot-tall robots, and a whole futuristic highway system with semi-autonomous cars. It was billed the world of tomorrow. A lightning bolt epitomizes man's harnessing of electricity. In this plaza of light, the nation's foremost companies present the magic of today that paves the way for the miracles of tomorrow. Symbols of more power to you and all the world. Signposts of the marvels of the modern electric era. My argument has been that these fairs provided the cultural ballast for stabilizing, um, advancing capitalist, industrializing societies. This is Rob Rydell, a historian of world's fairs who teaches at the Montana State University, Bozeman. And Rob tells me that this 39 World's Fair, and actually all of the world's fairs in the 30s, they were dealing with a period of crisis, you know, the Great Depression and all. So these fairs struck a very particular note and had a very particular message. It was basically this, don't worry about all you've been through. Corporate America's got you. A man-made Niagara features the building that houses the electric utilities display. Here is emphasized the forward march of America, resistless as a torrent's flow. What are some arguments we can put forward that we're on the right course, stay the course? And that's pretty much what the World's Fairs do, both before 1929 and after. So 1929 to 1941, 1940, 39, um, it's not just the United States in crisis. Increasingly, it's a world in crisis. The rise of Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin in power, Japan marching across Asia. Lots of people forget that there was a, a vibrant communist party in the United States and uh, a lot of anxiety about whether this um, westernizing, modernizing world could, um, these capitalist societies could uh, really withstand all of these pressures. And one result of that is <laughs> a decade of extraordinary world's fairs intended to shape the way people saw the world. In these world fairs, I mean, there's exhibitions, right? There's like Soviet statues of workers, for instance, and then yep. there's what yep. the United States is doing. But there's also, within that, there's pavilions that you know, the Radio Corporation of America or Westinghouse is putting together. So, like, what exactly is a World's Fair and how is it sort of constructed? A World's Fair, as I think about them, are not trade shows. They're not privately organized. Um, uh, well, I take that back. To some extent, they are, but all of these events have 
buy-in from national governments. So you have national governments inviting other national governments to establish exhibits to help organize them. So they are underwritten in um, large part, in the case of the United States, by the U.S. government. And even the Chicago Fair of 33 that my father went to and regale me with stories and us with stories that this was, uh, this it was this event that pulled Chicago out of the Depression and had nothing to do with FDR. Here we are, folks, at Chicago's world-famed century of progress, the spectacular fair that was started by a beam of light from the Star Arcturus. In point of fact, um, it was the U.S. government building and it was government science, sponsored science that was fundamental to that undertaking. So you have um, people with a lot at stake, um, a lot of investment, the Henry Fords of the world. Uh, you have the major exhibitors. You also have the governments and you get these really curious alliances. Henry Ford was not a Democrat. He was not supportive of FDR, but uh, Henry Ford appeared at these fairs with his massive Ford pavilions. With one foot on the land and one in industry, America is safe, says Henry Ford. At his exposition, an industrialized barn shows how soybeans grown on the farm may be processed for industrial purposes. And if you go through the, uh, the Ford archives, you will find a lot of concern among Ford executives about um, just how dangerous the times were. And so, yes, we have to we have to spend money. Uh, we have to convince people to buy more cars in the middle of a depression, right? The worst year is 1933. And there's this bloody fair called a century of progress. Talk about gaslighting. I mean, <laughs> this is just incredible. Skyline of glowing monuments to beauty. Look at this dazzling performance of architectural effort. A symphony in steel and stone and glass, a tribute to structural perfection. With its but it was just this uh, fount of extraordinary optimism that, um, uh, yes, if we can just keep things together, uh, there will be sufficient income and we can stimulate people buying things as part of the New Deal, too. And if we can just work together on this, we can pull ourselves out. Tell me a little bit more about your dad and like, what was he doing and, and what did he tell you about that World's Fair? Why, why do you think it captured his imagination so much? Oh, I, oh, I know exactly. I mean, he was, oh, my heavens, he would have been maybe 13, 14 years old. Mm. And what captured his imagination was one exhibit in particular, and that was um, uh, part of the Streets of Paris concession, and it featured a fan dancer by the name of Sally Rand. <laughs> so he and his friends would um, uh, routinely cut school to uh, make their way to the Chicago World's Fair in theory to take in the, the educational exhibits. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, I think the uh, uh, the education they received was probably more along the fair's midway than from the main exhibition buildings. Mardi Gras of frolic. The midway, chief artery of thrills, city of million lights and spectacles, a blaze of flaming color, of sights and sounds and hurly-burly, teeming with magicians, sword swallowers, dragon rides, alligator fighters, Egyptian hotshaw girls, sideshow wonders, a midget village, and what else do you like? One of the things that I learned I was watching a talk that you gave was just about kind of fashion and the depiction of women in these world fairs being a really central part of it and, the, and a kind of like eugenics discourse, right? About like the perfect yep. female body, can you talk a little, bit, a little bit about that, like how are women constructed in these fairs? Oh, I can do better than that. So this is 39 Vogue magazine, and this is the kind of um, 
of centerfold that you get in Vogue. So these are industrial designers um, who did the buildings at the fair were invited to come up with designs for the woman of the future. And so all of these um, uh, industrial designers, Raymond Lowy, Donald Desky, um, Bel Geddes, they're invited to construct their ideal types of women and talk about fashion for women in the 19, uh, in the, at the end of the 20th century. So that's the kind of design you get. So these streamlined um, fashion designs uh, tied to that streamlined bodies and just, so here's Raymond Lowy. Um, he's, uh, this is Vogue, a designer of locomotives and lipsticks creates a future travel dress. Says that design isn't going to matter all that much. Uh, fashion designers are pretty much going to go out of business. And he concludes his um, selection here by saying, um, eugenic selection may bring generations so aesthetically correct that clothes, um, such clothes will be in order. In other words, fewer clothes, uh, women's bodies will be perfect. So just to understand, you're putting designers out of business essentially because you've made all women the perfect the same. female. Yeah, form. they're going to be they're going to be perfect and glamorous <laughs> and and you know, all else. I mean, you look at this and you and it's and of course. I mean, we laugh. Yeah. We also forget that tied to the story of technology and fairs um, is this industrial design component that Christina Cogdell talks about in a great book called Eugenics by Design. And these industrial designers are all over eugenics. I mean, these, we're going to streamline buildings. Think of the streamlined architecture of the 20s and 30s, 40s. Um, and these designers are also interested in streamlining women's bodies to make them comport with this. So. They also construct within these fairs a very particular vision of the role of science and technology in a democratic society. I mean, the kind of motto, I guess, I don't know if it's a motto, please correct me if I have it wrong, but I read this of the Chicago Fair, science finds, industry applies, and man conforms, which strikes me as a particularly sort of like dystopian sort of technological determinism, but but there's optimism around this. So can you explain a little bit about what that motto meant and, and what it was? Oh, sure. Uh, but it is, it's uh, more than vaguely disturbing, right? Yeah. So um, it's, it's the motto of, it becomes the unofficial motto of the fair, and it's tied to the centerpiece of the fair, um, which is called the Hall of Science. Like a sentinel commanding the sun stands the Hall of Science. Saluting the waters of the shimmering lagoon, it is a typical example of the regal architecture that is... To so to sort of explain what's going on there, we have to step back a little bit to World War I, which was not exactly the finest moment um, for technology and science, given what uh, DuPont and others were doing with poison gases and um, aircraft dropping bombs, um, machine guns, tanks, and all else. So... There's a lot of skepticism about science in the 1920s. And so the Hall of Science is a response by the National Research Council. They do the intellectual content of the fair to uh, put science in a more positive light. And one way they did that was to pair science with technology and link that to progress. So they came up with this artful slogan, science finds, industry applies, and man conforms. And there is a sense of determinism about that. And it's one that um, I, I think many of the organizers of these exhibits wholeheartedly embraced. It's fascinating. Maybe there's some sort of like cultural or historical translation that needs to happen here. But when, when at least when I read the word conform, it doesn't strike me as one that connotes good things. I mean, why would they have thought of that as something desirable? 
context helps. Put yourself into the world of, um, I don't know, the black and white film footage everyone has seen of the Great Depression, the, the bread lines, the protests, um, a society that seems on the brink of collapse and out of control. So a lot of the messaging at these fairs um, is linked to the importance of planning. Mm-hmm. Um, urban planning, social planning, government planning, uh, as opposed to the kind of laissez-faire, um, let's just call it uh, not individualism, but laissez-faire chaos that seems to be enveloping the Western world and the world um, <laughs> itself in the 1930s. Right. That's really interesting. So what would you have seen? I mean, we talked a little bit about the science pavilion, but what are some of the standouts from that fair in 33. Oh, from 33, oh my goodness, um, there's a sky ride. Powering sky ride that offers the major thrill of the fair. And what have you visitors got from the windows of these rocket riders? Traveling across the lagoon, one saw... There are exhibits of auto manufacturers. Ford has this, um, uh, maybe it's Chrysler. They have this quite extraordinary exhibit where they have three very large vehicles hanging from a ceiling. It looks like an automobile chandelier. Mingling with the brisk tone of modern America, we find, too, the spice and flavor of the foreign. From Europe and the Orient come resplendent roofs of gold, exotic reminders of different times and civilizations. Adding their individual... I mean, there's it's sort of an endless array of things that will sort of lead people to believe the world is going to be made better through technology. And that's where that all crystallizes is in 39 at the New York Fair with Futurama, the big GM exhibit, um, which really looks, uh, takes you into the world of the 1960s when you have cars that are pretty much self-driving on rubberized highways. It's a world of uh, DuPont, better living through chemistry. It's a world of, um, at the New York Fair, one of the buildings was put up by Johns Manville, which your listeners may uh, understand is uh, asbestos uh, manufacturer. So that building, so this is just a sample of what you could see. I mean, it has this quite extraordinary set of displays about how asbestos is going to make everything better for everyone through fireproofing, but there'll be asbestos clothes and they even have some poor sot dressed up as asbestos man walking around the exhibit. So they had a seven foot tall robot, right? I read about the Westinghouse Electro Man and um... Electro Man, yes. (laughs) Who? Me? Yes, you. Okay, Toots. Yes, they had robots of these fairs of the thirties, and then there's another robot, it's a character, a human being dressed in a robot suit who dances at uh, Zorro's Nudist Garden in San Diego Fair. So there are all of these interesting photographs of robots frolicking about with scantily clad women. So there's this really interesting intersection Mm. between gender uh, ideas about gender, ideas about sexuality, and all of this mediated through the lens of how we think about technology. So it's just fascinating stuff. You're hearing my interview with historian Robert Rydell. Back to him in a minute. If you like what we do, I want you to support us on Patreon. Patrons get content a day early, they never hear this plea, and sometimes they hear exclusive bonus material. Like last week, we released an exclusive interview about predatory journals. The interview was with Jeffrey Beale, who put together this thing called Beale's List. It's basically a repository of all these scammy academic journals. If you want to hear that and other things, go to our Patreon. 
It's patreon.com forward slash starts and letters. You mentioned uh, Futurama, and I think most listeners will think of the cartoon, and you're right to do so, because that's where the name comes from, which leads me to sort of one of the questions about 39. I mean, the sheer amount of pop culture references, it's sort of wedded into our literature, into our cartoons, our TV shows. One of the things that's fascinating, I was reading the the Stuart Ewan book on public relations, and he has a chapter about the New York World's Fair, that kind of the, the corporate vision at 39, he contrasts it with the kind of New Deal documentary kind of public relations. You know, the, the, I think his name was Heinz, the photographer, you know, looking at people essentially in sweatshops, children, poor people, and the kind of like realism of the New Deal sort of gets co-opted by this glitzy, glamorous, technologically utopian vision. But it's still within that moment. It's still within that politics. So it's interesting, you alluded to it earlier, I mean, that Ford is participating, you know, when, when he's very much an opponent of FDR and the New Deal. So how are these... I don't know if alliances or allegiances is the right word, but how do these two sort of different visions of the New Deal get kind of like married or merged in the same place? Well, Baptists and bootleggers, right? I mean, they kind of need each other. Mm -hmm. So FDR needs um, Henry Ford. He needs Henry Ford to manufacture cars. Ford needs FDR to help stabilize a domestic and international economy so he can sell cars. So there's that kind of self-interested work. But I also think there's a general sense <laughs> that um, the future has to be better than it is. And here's an opportunity to test drive, no pun intended, <laughs> some different um, ways to get there. So FDR has a, uh, certainly a different vision from Ford in many respects. But we kind of miss the point if we put those two in opposition or in alliance. But just to get back to your question about the fair itself, you know, these World's Fairs were fun. Mm. So you could go and you could see asbestos band and you could learn about asbestos and have fun doing that right? You could look into the future and actually have fun. You could see Electro, uh, the robot, smoking a cigarette and say, oh, well, something's going to remain the same. Uh, robots, they may be a little bit scary, but if they smoke cigarettes, they're probably okay. Oh, yes, Electro, you do need a light too, don't you? All right, here you are. And folks, he's only two years old too. Just learning. It's a a world where play and power intersect. But it seems like the kind of play or the kind of spectacle on offer here is a kind of passive spectacle. Like, we are going to deliver to you the world of tomorrow, DuPont and Westinghouse, et cetera, et cetera, in opposition to a real burgeoning kind of economic democracy and sort of populist appeal of of sort of taking control and taking the reins and having a planned economy that is planned by working people it seems like they're taking that populist moment and saying, we've got the language, we can reappropriate it, but we can make sure that it is one that serves Ford and Westinghouse and DuPont, et cetera. It's a particular vision that they have on offer, right? Oh, sure, absolutely. I mean, this is corporate capitalism at its best. They're going to co-opt alternatives. It's not that there's anything new about that, or it's not that we don't have the experience today, witness the debates over social media and how that's been transformed and consolidated. So 
the fair has really become a kind of a really interesting laboratory for looking at how this whole process works. And the fairs are contested. I mean, African-Americans are largely excluded from them, so they um, have organized protests. There are civil rights demonstrations at the 64-65 fair. And if you move to the European fairs, the uh, whole um, uh, representation of European colonies and the pushback from those who were put on exhibit at the fairs as part of these colonial exhibits. So there's just a tremendous amount of, uh, uh, it's a word, I guess we don't hear much uh, today, but let's all use it, uh, dialectic, let's call it dialectical struggle, a back and forth at this, um, at these expositions. So they are fluid, they're not static. To transition to today, in terms of the World's Fair in public consciousness, public imagination, especially in the United States and Canada, I don't think anyone right now, I mean, I would challenge a listener to tell me where the World's Fair is, they, they're going to have to Google it, I would bet. Yep. Why is it that they seem to have lost their appeal? If you step back, and I don't know the Canadian story, um, but I'm sad to say, but the the American story is uh, linked to a couple of things. Um, in the 1980s, the U.S. is undergoing one of its cyclical um, isolationist periods, a lot of blowback against international involvement, budget cuts, um, so on and so forth. So to be part of the international organization that basically oversees World's Fairs, member nations have to pay dues. So by the time Clinton is president, uh, there are these trade-offs in Congress, and Clinton, basically the Clinton administration agrees to cut off uh, funding, and that leads to the U.S. withdrawing from the convention governing World's Fairs, World's Fairs in an age of the internet seem like totally yesterday, just has-beens who pays attention to them. The real story is a bit more complicated because uh, there haven't been fairs in Canada or the U.S. for a while, but it's not as if these events have uh, disappeared. Shanghai 2010 had 70 million people. Hmm. I mean, that's a good crowd. There's a fair going on right now in um, Dubai that uh, appears to be really quite extraordinary um, for all kinds of reasons. They were expecting 25 million. They're not going to get that. But if they get 10 million people in person in this uh, these years of COVID, that would be pretty incredible. Hmm. So fairs have, there's a kind of Eurocentric, uh, North American-centric view of these things that doesn't quite jibe with what's happening elsewhere in the world, because certainly in Asia, now the Middle East, um, you know, these expositions are pretty important. Um, I, popular is a word I want to uh, sort of uh, not use here, but they have uh, tremendous import for how particular nations are thinking about themselves and positioning themselves in the arena of public diplomacy, foreign relations. What's fascinating about the study of world's fairs is that they haven't disappeared. That was Robert Rydell. He's a professor of history at Montana State University, Bozeman. He is author of many books and articles about world's fairs, including All the World's Affair, World's Affairs, and Fair America. Say that three times real fast. You've probably never been to a world's fair, or as they call them today, expos. But maybe you've been to an old site. 
And if you have been, there's a good chance that it was rather derelict. Here in Canada, the Montreal site and the Vancouver site are case in point, and there's also one in New York. They all have these abandoned buildings. It's kind of eerie. It's eerie to see something that was so optimistic end up so sad. So let's take a look. Let's meet up with a tour guide of old fair sites, a tour guide of lost utopias. That's after the break. Darts is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. Harbinger is a collection of left-wing Canadian podcasts. And if you're interested in the politics of technology, well, there is an entire show on the network dedicated to this very topic. It's called Tech Won't Save Us with Paris Marks. You can find that and other podcasts at the Harbinger Media Network. Jade Dosko is a New York-based photographer. She did a project called Lost Utopias, which is where we took the title of this episode from. The concept is simple, but really affecting. She takes photos of old fairgrounds, and they're mostly in disrepair. Jade got this idea back when she first visited one herself. It was sort of by accident. I happened to be traveling with my family in Seville, in Spain, and uh, we went on one of those typical kind of tourist buses around the city, and it took us to the 1992 World's Fair site. Now in New York, the tour buses do not take tourists to semi-abandoned islands. And that's what this was. It was acres and acres of these postmodern buildings that were kind of falling into disrepair. There was these empty flagpoles kind of clanging in the wind and an empty fountain and these canals overgrown with a rocket emerging from weeds down at the end of the canal. And I thought, wow, what on earth is this? And in New York, we have the 1964 and 1939 fair sites. And similarly, they were kind of this dystopian part of the city on the fringes of Queens. So, I mean, certainly not in Times Square. It's not in the middle of the city. Monument to mass production that put America on wheels. Here are symbolized the changes the automobile has wrought in our country, contributing to a new way of life. And because that little bug was in my head, I thought, let me just try this. Let me go out to the Queen's site and try photographing Philip Johnson's New York State Pavilion, see what happens. Showing the world the vast resources and the glories of America, the triumphs of city and country, farm and factory, a saga of democracy. I grew to really love the New York State Pavilions, especially because it was really abandoned. So my first picture of it in 2007, there's ivy growing on the the central pillar and, you know, really has this feeling of of loss. And in the 10-year period between when I started the project and 2017 when I stopped, a group of volunteers started bringing awareness to that building and started volunteering their time and repainting in the original fair colors of bright red and yellow. So then it was this falling apart structure in ketchup, red and mustard yellow. And then the Queensborough president raised $6 million to start making the the building structurally stable. So it was really nice. It was a sign of seeing the arc of progress with just one building on one site. I became really intrigued by these visions of the future as seen through these temporary buildings. And then how did these visions of the future last into the actual future that was unforeseen by the designers, right? So, for example, in the 60s, clearly, everyone thought now we would always be traveling by monorail, for example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those figure prominently in like all the videos of the old um, fairs. I know that it's 67 in Montreal. I think they had one of those monorails or one of those trains that went around. 
There's a billion dollar glimpse of the day after tomorrow from the monorail, but get in early while there's still elbow room, because half a million people will be jostling together here. In what does it um, like feel like, I guess, for people that haven't been on one of these sites, which tend to be pretty expansive from my understanding, like to walk through a semi-abandoned, somewhat dystopian looking space that was meant to be a vision of the future, but it's an abandoned kind of vision. I mean, the Montreal site is a great example of that. It's situated on a, a man-made peninsula, which is Habitat 67. And then the rest of it is off on these islands and in this huge park, the Parc Jean Drapeau, the biosphere, which was the Buckminster Fuller Dome. It's beautiful. It's this diaphanous structure kind of rising up out of the park. And then you walk off through these forested pathways and end up at this enormous Alexander Calder sculpture, which faces the city, but it's really off to the side and it's this massive, immense piece of art. So there's a lot of things to discover at these sites that can be really quite a lot of fun. The, um, 1967 site is now where they hold the electronic music festivals in Montreal. I arrived at about 6 a.m. to start shooting the buckyball, and a young man was kind of stumbling around barefoot on something from, I think, the festival. So I thought, well, that's part of the site as well, right? <laughs> Some of the older fair sites, though, have this real sense of mystery, this aura. I went to photograph the 1904 fair site in St. Louis, part of which is now the St. Louis Zoo. So I talked to the folks at the zoo and they said I could come in before the zoo opens at around 6 a.m. and photograph um, the fair aviary. The aviary is this kind of skeletal, 180-foot-long structure with these naturalistic plantings around and it's kind of drizzling and the birds are peering at me. So that was quite an experience as well. And also Treasure Island, 1939 in San Francisco was quite something. They constructed this island out of some kind of garbage. The island hadn't existed. And when you get out there, because of the way the island is situated in the bay, the wind is just blowing dirt and filth into your face when you're walking around. And that was something that happened during the fair. So, you know, the, thinking about these elaborate fair setups with the wind and dirt blowing around, bizarre, you know. I pulled a few of your photos. I'm going to try and see if I can share them with you because I had some questions about them. One sec. Um... Here is a Canada never experienced before. Cultural exhibits, wonders of science and technology, and a constant carnival of live performances all contained beneath the pavilion's majestic sails. Do you mind just kind of describing a little bit about what we're seeing in, in this particular photo I pulled with some uh, CanCon here in the uh, barge in the bay here in Vancouver, which held an expo in 86? What are we seeing here in this photo? This originally was a futuristic floating McDonald's, <laughs> and the vernacular name for it was the McBarge. <laughs> This was a World's Fair that was looking at the environment and transportation and culture. And this was in the center of Vancouver originally for the fair. 
And over the years, it, it kind of was listing in port and the city government really wanted it out. It was a real eyesore. And a gentleman acquired the McBarge with the intention of turning it into a nightclub. Didn't happen. Apparently, he didn't get the, the necessary permits. And so it was kind of sent off into these outskirts in this industrial area. And I only found out where it was. It took about 45 minutes of driving outside of the city center because a woman at a random gas station said, oh, yeah, my son works out there. He knows where the McBarge is and told me where it was. So, yeah, this was a, a futuristic floating McDonald's from 1986. I don't know if it's still floating, in fact. Um, and, uh, yeah, so now it's kind of this strange eyesore on the outskirts of, of Vancouver. <laughs> I lived in Vancouver for a long time, and I, I lived in this building that was right beside the Plaza of Nations, which is basically now nothing but a parking lot, a bunch of flagpoles with no flags on them, an abandoned casino a Costco and my physiotherapist, and that's about it. And it, it is really this, now they're redeveloping it, but it basically it's this empty spot in, in what is some of the most valuable real estate in, in North America, really. And in Vancouver, I mean, Expo 86 figures into the imagination as this like moment, this political juncture where like, most people will tell you like it basically like ruined the city. Like all this money gets pumped in and this like big condo development and sort of like becomes less and less a kind of working class city and more a city of sort of international capital, resource exploitation, et cetera, et cetera. Is that kind of story similar in different communities? Is it, are World's Fairs always a kind of a big kind of juncture point within the politics of the space? That's so interesting to learn about how locals in Vancouver perceive this. I actually attended the 2015 Expo in Milan in person because I thought I should actually go to a live World's Fair. And before I went there, there were protests against the Expo happening because the economy wasn't great in Italy and there's all this money being thrown away. And they started constructing infrastructure, spent millions of dollars, realized they'd made um, some fundamental mistakes and then had to redo it. So just literally throwing money away, throwing money away. And when I attended... I had a similar sense that, well, what's really the point of this right now? Now, other cities, I think, approach this all really differently. And one of my favorite examples is there was a competition to see which city should host. And it came down to San Diego and San Francisco. And ultimately, San Francisco was awarded the, the honor of hosting because they had just come out of the 1906 earthquake. But... San Diego wanted to prove themselves as a city as well. And they said, well, we're going to hold an expo anyway. And they basically constructed all of Balboa Park in the Spanish colonial style. And of all the American cities that I went to, that was the expo site that is the most well-preserved and completely in use. There's, I can't remember how many museums are there, but it's beautifully maintained and all of the museums were well-attended and the zoo is there. So of all the sites, I think San Diego in their technically unapproved <laughs> efforts really created the most lasting effect. Next one, I think this is, uh, this is definitely Montreal, the Habitat uh, 67. It's a really unique looking building. How would you describe this building? The only residential building of World's Fair Sites. striking features was the new concept of urban housing, an experiment in modern living, as well as a breakthrough in construction methods called Habitat. It certainly brings to mind Tetris or Legos or something like that. It's it's a cluster of cubes that are all 
jutting out from one another in different directions. Fascinating shapes, lines, color. And it's and symmetrical. So it's a symmetrical cluster of cubes constructed out of concrete. The concrete is aging a little bit. And many of the cubes are unique from one another because people have modified them in their mm -hmm. own personal styles. So we see a little, some glass built in open areas, different kinds of trees emerging from the cubes, things like that. And if you can imagine the full construction of this is three clusters of these cubes, one next to another with courtyards connecting them. People seem to really gravitate to this kind of photography, myself included. I find them eerily interesting, and I always look at them when they pop up into my feed. And as someone who takes these kinds of photos, I was just wondering, like, what do you think draws people to these, to these types of photos? There is just something very compelling that all this effort was made to construct these things, and then the way they degrade is kind of beyond the imagination, the way the paint is peeling, the ghostly feeling as you walk through these abandoned spaces. The World's Fair sites were built for millions of people. So when you have a site that is for the masses and there's nobody there, you can't help but wonder, maybe there's some echoes of those masses that kind of infiltrates the entire environment. That was Jade Dosko. She's a New York-based architectural and landscape photographer, and she's faculty at the International Center for Photography. You can check out her series about world's fairs. It's called Lost Utopias, and it's at jdoskophotography.com. That's linked on our show notes. What is techno-utopia? What is techno-optimism? What is technological progress? Hell, what is technology? These may seem like simple questions, but really they're not. These are big philosophical problems that really do vex the left. And your answer to those types of questions does suggest different political programs. Like, should we be optimistic about technology or not so much? Is there a middle ground? Can technology help us master nature, or must we admit certain limitations? Is technology a kind of neutral tool for the owners of that technology, be they capital or be they the people? Or does the technology itself have a kind of internal logic that shapes us? Well, to start to answer these questions, or at least introduce them, I felt we needed a basic primer. And what do you know, there is one. It's called Culture and Technology, a Primer. That's a book written by Jennifer Slack and her co-author, Jay McGregory Wise. Jennifer is Distinguished Professor of Communication and Cultural Studies at Michigan Tech. I thought it would be good to sort of retrace our steps in this episode and go back to the world's fairs, but go back to them with a cultural theorist. The first fair that we really discuss at any length in this episode is the one in 1933 at Chicago, which is a very auspicious year, obviously, because of the Great Depression. And what the fair decided to have as its motto is a century of progress. 
it's interesting that you begin with the concept of progress because I think it is the really important place to begin. Robert Nisbet wrote in the 1980s a book on progress in which he looked at the way in which it had been understood historically. What he found consistently was that this notion of progress entails a view of what it means to be human and to become more perfectly human. And so there's the story that we were savage, primitive beings and are on this path, this path to progress. And the word progress, if you look it up in the dictionary, just means movement. But the way it has been understood culturally is movement towards something better. So Nisbet was really interested in what was it we were moving toward. The sense, the cultural sense of what we're moving toward was then, and and to some degree still is now, is that we're moving toward utopia. Mm. But what is utopia? That question has then to be asked. What happens is that larger notion of the evolution of the human being gets tangled up with technological utopia. And the assumption is that it's technology that brings us to that level of potential perfection. Another phrase that came out of this World's Fair, I think this was maybe an unofficial motto, it read, science finds industry applies and man conforms, which, you know, I read as particularly like the word conform I read as pretty dystopian, but clearly to them at the time, they didn't. And I thought, I thought this one was a particularly rich one to critique because there's a couple things there that, that stand out to me. The, the one is the kind of determinism of it. You know, there is a thing out there to find. And then when one finds it, one has no other option than to go down the path that it commands one to, to go. So can you tell me a little bit about technological determinism and what that means and, and how people complicate that story? So technological determinism essentially means that the nature of all things, human life, culture, is determined by technology. There's nothing else that needs to be involved, right? You develop technology. It's almost as though the technology drops from the sky, (laughs) or it's the product of an individual genius. And then it changes everything. It's interesting, that phrase, because then we have to conform to it. And it produces progress. It produces the perfect world. And we kind of lag behind. (laughs) So we have to come to conform. So there was a sense that we had to educate people to catch up. Adapt or die was a phrase that was sometimes used. This produces enormous social problems, right? So when, when people no longer know how to use new technology and they no longer have access to the things that they used to have access to. We see that going on a lot now. So there was a notion developed called the technological fix. Mm. So technology would produce problems, but we would fix it with more technology. (laughs) Next World's Fair that we 
we looked at a lot in this episode was the one in 1939 in New York City. And I think this was the first one that really looked forward. It really was about, not about celebrating a century of progress, but a kind of constructing a future. And its motto was dawn of a new day or a world of tomorrow. Again, another auspicious year, 39. I mean, coming out of the depression, still in it really, going into the war. And a lot of the focus there was on technological fixes to social problems and then also just technological fixes to problems in the home, you know, like a dishwasher or problems on the road and, you know, thinking about self-driving cars, et cetera, et cetera. That kind of leads me to ask you a question because another thing that you look at in the book is this sort of idea of convenience and what does exactly convenience mean? I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yes. um, There's an interesting shift that happens where we are deeply committed to progress and what happens, we become deeply committed to convenience for some time. And convenience is a very interesting word. It initially meant that it was a good fit. Something was a convenient if it was a good fit. But what happens in American culture is that convenience becomes, it comes to mean ease, right? So removing labor, removing stress. What's happening economically is that this is the development of a new market of inside marketing technologies inside the home. If you think about that, the trend, so we've gone from dishwashers in the home to uh, Siri in the home. We've gone to smart refrigerators that order our food automatically. And all of this is essentially sold to us as convenience. And it means I don't have to go to the store. But of course, when you get to just get things delivered, you usually get more than you really want. So it it has a, a powerful economic incentive to develop these conveniences and to sell them. One thing I've been thinking about is, and this gets to maybe like an even deeper philosophical question about what is a technology, Because if you think of technology in the most kind of expansive way, you know, even theories of planning or architecture or how to organize a a government or an economy, in what ways aren't those technologies? And in what ways do we sort of devalue those types of innovations? Since we've been talking and using the term technology, what people are likely hearing is that technology is a computer, technology is a dishwasher, technology is a microphone, a computer, a thing. I call this thingness, right? So I think the basic cultural understanding of technology is it's the things, it's the stuff. This really got confused when we developed computers, particularly laptops and networks and the internet. What is the technology of the internet? What is the thing? it becomes a little bit uh, more diffuse. And I would argue, and this is not unique to me, I mean, people have been arguing this for a very long time, that this is not the right way to look at technology, to isolate it in terms of things, thingness, material things. The material things are important, but if I have a computer and it's not connected to the internet and it's not connected to electricity and it doesn't have a battery, it's just matter. 
It's not a computer. It's only a computer because of all of the connections to networks and practices and people and companies that produce them and ships that carry them and practices that we have about that this is how I should work on a computer. So technology is not the thing. Technologies are, are the networks. So what is a door? A door is egress, ingress. It's about defense. It's about isolation. It's about surveillance. It's about friends and enemies. And you have to again, expand your understanding of what a technology is. And so bureaucratic technologies are bureaucratic practices. Mm -hmm. They involve things, software programs, but they're, they're complex practices. And this distinction between technology and not technology is, serves certain interests. It serves the innovation of certain kinds of technologies and not others. So like you said, in the humanities and the social sciences are not viewed so much, certainly not the humanities, as technological. So therefore, they're less important. They're not part of the progress story. They don't provide convenience. We can undervalue them. But if you begin to expand a notion of technology as yes, connected to things, but really the way things happen, right? So the, the way we get things done, the way things work or don't work, a complex network of relationships, it's much more interesting. But then what you do is to do that, you have to then value the humanities, the social sciences, the other ways of looking at the world that then draw away from the valorization and elevation of STEM, right? Science, technology, engineering, and math. And boy, that's a tough one to work against. It's such a helpful way to think about technology, though, because there's a way in which the thingness of it, to use that term, is like shrouds the relations of it, right? So we think of the phone as a phone, but we don't think about, you know, the laborers that are making them, how their labor is organized. If you start thinking of it as like a node in a network, then you, then you can think about what it really is bringing together in what way. You use the word shroud, and I think that is a perfect word because the, it's our habits of thinking that allow us to focus on the thingness that do, in fact, shroud the complexities that bring that thing to you. So you picked up your phone. So it, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed by my phone. You know, it's a brand new phone. But what it, by me thinking of this as disconnected to all of those things, I don't have to think about the kids that are mining rare metals by digging with their hands, or I don't have to think about the, the, the trash that this thing becomes and who works to separate it in China and gets ill because of the toxicity of its trash. So I wanted to ask you about the resistance to it, right? The resistance to techno-utopianism and technological determinism. There's two types you write about that I've also noticed recently that has been getting 
surprisingly good press, I feel. Maybe that's too strong of a word, but the Luddites, right? There have been a number of books recently sort of reinterpreting the Luddites and and a number of people sort of tongue-in-cheek calling themselves Luddites more and more. And perhaps even more surprisingly, the strange cult fanaticism around the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, and the people who claim he was right (laughs) in some ways. Why don't we start with the Luddites? I mean, could you just give me sort of a brief historical encapsulation of of who they were and why they're back? So there's a chapter in the book on, um, on the Luddites and on Luddism. And it always ends up being a favorite of the, the students. But it's in the early 1800s in, in England. And it was among um, stockingers, you know, weaving machines. And the Luddites, they get a really bad name because when you actually study them historically, and that's why you're saying that there's a lot of sort of revisionism about the Luddites, they realized that the new uh, weaving techniques were going to change their lives. It was going to basically put a lot of people out of work. And there was a whole cultural life at stake and the factory owners were interested in making more money. They weren't much interested in the lives of these people. And so the resistance, the Luddite movement, was against these particular technologies because it was going to be so disruptive to their lives. They're not anti-technology. And I think that's the myth that serves the wrong interests. (laughs) <laughs> they were not anti-technology. They were anti-particular technology because this particular technology was going to disrupt their social lives. So the the other kind of resistance I mentioned was Ted Kaczynski. For people who don't know, briefly summarize, you probably do know, primitivist guy, lived in the woods, railed against technology, wrote a manifesto that was published in the papers and sent bombs to people and is now in prison for life. So. You write about how there is this kind of resurgence of interest in him, I think both politically and intellectually. So maybe I'll start on kind of the intellectual level. People have started to actually look at his writing and not simply dismiss him as insane, just, you know, pretty fraught territory. I can see why people might've had trepidations for even considering it seriously. But people are now, so I want to learn a little bit more about that. What what have scholars been starting to do with Ted Kaczynski? Well, one of the really useful things that Ted Kaczynski did in his writing was insist upon the fact that technology is related to quality of life, that technology is not necessarily progress, that it is this can be really disruptive. I mean, just to put a finer point on that, like in the book, I think you say really kind of bravely, um, and it's a little funny, that he is writing about and using the very readings that you would be writing about using and teaching your very students. Um, Absolutely. And how has that made you and other scholars feel? When you are faced with the overwhelming power of the story of technology as progress, it's way too easy to just go the other direction, which is, I think, Kaczynski's 
fault. I mean, he was willing to kill people over this issue. That's not the solution we're looking for here, right? So you can't dismiss his frustration. His frustration is real and it's legitimate. You can certainly criticize his means for dealing with it. And um, I, I think the people who do take his work seriously take that position. I have not read anybody who's advocating, you know, bombing anyone or killing anyone, not, not to that level. But how do you disrupt? How do you resist when the magnitude of the problem seems overwhelming? Mm. So I've been, um, one of my earlier books came out on, it was on the ideology of the information age that was in the early 80s. And I was saying, you know, this information age, this coming information age that's going ha- to happen, we don't have to swallow this thing whole. We can make an effort to make it equitable and fair. And of course we didn't. I mean, you know, there's, we now have the information age that was kind of unleashed by um, greed and conceptions of progress and running over people and plenty of unfairness. And, and so it's frustrating. And, you know, I live in the country. I am not entirely off grid, but I use solar power. We heat with wood. We use very low energy, but I'm not Ted Kaczynski. (laughs) No. (laughs) So how can we kind of get ourselves out of that trap of that Kaczynski-like fatalism and kind of like yearning, those sort of blackpilling people call it on the internet of just like collapse, put ourselves in a more politically empowering relationship with technology that says we can author something different. It's, it's not totalizing. That's a difficult question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if, if I knew the answer to that question, <laughs> I would write a manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> and send it to the papers. And send it to the papers <laughs> and teach it. No, I, I, I am totally with you. How do we do that? Right. So I don't think that it's constructive to go in the direction of Kaczynski, it's setting the violence aside. I don't think that's the answer, but it is very difficult to figure out how to take that middle path. The only things that I can suggest is for local involvement, actually involvement at any level, (laughs) you know, no matter where you are. I tell my students this too, you know, no matter where you are, you can do something. You know, if you want to live off the grid, fine, go live off the grid. But not everybody needs to do that. I mean, we need politicians who understand this issues to can help pass good laws. We need good regulation. We need teachers to teach this sort of way of understanding technology. We need researchers who are willing not just to talk about technical aspects, but understand the fundamental cultural components even though they're STEM scholars and researchers. We need corporations to become more ethical. I remain optimistic that there are enough human beings who care and other human beings can be 
swayed into believing that this is, and taught that this is a useful way to think about really, truly moving forward. That the good life is not just about the fanciest technology. And in fact, the good life maybe requires that we step back a little bit from the fanciest technology. That was Jennifer Slack. She is Distinguished Professor of Communication and Cultural Studies at Michigan Tech. We discussed her book, Culture and Technology, a primer. That's co-written with J. McGregory Wise. You can find their book linked on our show notes. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is Jay Coburn. Our managing producer is Mark Epilonio. We had research and show notes from Dave Mosscrop, and our marketing assistant is Ian Souten. On this episode, we had advising from Professor Tanner Murleys at Ontario Tech University, as well as Professor Imra Zeman at the University of Waterloo. This begins a series of episodes that we're making with Imra and Tanner, and they are all going to be about techno-utopianism and techno-utopian theorists. Stay tuned for more. As always, our theme song and outro was composed by Mike Barber. Graphic designs are done by Dakota Coop, and I'm your host and editor, Gordon Caddick. You can send us feedback by emailing the show. The address is darts at citedmedia.ca, or you can tweet us at darts and letters. Darts and Letters is supported by our generous patrons. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Patrons get content a day early. This episode and this series also received funding through the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. Thanks for listening. Check back in next Friday.